0: We know that the double bind of our gender and leader roles can be tricky to navigate, but there are some great tactics we can deploy to make it easier. Hi, I'm Penny DeVolk. Welcome to Grit in the Oyster, a podcast offering insights for women leaders. Why Grit in the Oyster? Well, because an oyster makes pearls from a foreign object or irritation. And that's often how we can feel as women leaders in organizations today trick is not to get spat out, but to grow into that natural gem. Through conversations with leaders and experts in the field of women in leadership, I hope to offer insight and inspiration as well as practical advice, helping you navigate those grit-in-the-oyster moments or times in your career. It's an opportunity to reflect, to step out of the fray, to tune out some of the noise and tune into being the best leader you can be. Hello from locked down in London. It's my great pleasure today to welcome Professor Melissa Williams. Melissa is calling in from Atlanta, Georgia. And Professor Williams is an associate professor of organization and management at Guzweta Business School in Emory University. She gained her PhD in social psychology from Berkeley University and a postdoctoral fellowship at Stanford Graduate School of Business. In her research, Professor Williams is really interested in what happens when our social identities, such as gender, race or culture, collide with hierarchies in the workplace. A very, very warm welcome, Melissa.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Penny.
0: I'm wondering if you could start just telling us a bit about your story. What's What brought you to social psychology and your own leadership path?
1: Sure, so I, I think the issues that I study are things that uh, lots of us are interested in and go back a long time For for me, you know, in, in school and in high school, even looking around and being curious about why some people were friends with others and all those different kind of interpersonal aspects that are important to all teenagers. Uh, I was really interested in and in, in, in why men and women or girls and boys at that point take different paths was really interesting to me. And uh, took a while to get there in terms of my professional path. I uh, did a few different jobs after, after college. Um, but suddenly had an epiphany or uh, or came to an epiphany that all these things I was curious about, about why people are the way they are and why some people seem to have better outcomes or more opportunities than others mm-hmm. is something people can actually study with science and do for a living. And that was just an amazing uh, realization for me. And so that was when I decided to go back to graduate school to get a Ph.D. and Uh, It's really been a a dream that I can study the things that uh, I've been curious about my whole life and that many people are curious about. So uh, so I went back to school. I went to, to Berkeley, as you mentioned, for my degree. Uh, And then transitioned a little bit. So so social psychology and in in the world of business is called organizational behavior. And so that's where we take questions about human behavior and why people are the way they are and how they behave um, and look at them in a workplace context. So when I uh, started my postdoctoral fellowship, that was in the business school at Stanford. And so that allowed me to apply some of these things I was interested in uh to workplace settings so I've always been curious about things like why are women paid less than men uh why do people with different racial backgrounds uh have different leadership opportunities at work uh so after the fellowship at Stanford then I uh, took the position at Emory here in Atlanta Mm -hmm. here since uh 2011.
0: That's fantastic and that's a that's a great journey. And I love the fact that it's a, a path that's been led by curiosity. <laughs> and you, you recall <laughs> that curiosity as a teenager. Um yeah. I'd love you to to share some of your insights uh that's come from your research and beyond uh on women in power.
1: Sure. So that's an intersection I've been really interested in uh for for many years, and it's certainly relevant to women who are in uh Uh, Careers who are seeking professional uh, achievements. And so in a business school, you work and talk to students who are at all levels. So I teach undergraduates who are just figuring out what they wanna do all the way up to uh, executives and professionals who have come a long way and are trying to move their work uh, to the next level. And one of the things that I uh, encounter from all of those students, from women students, uh, was this question about this backlash thing. So this is something that women have heard about anecdotally, whether they're young women or older women encountered, had some experiences in their careers that led them to think, you know, if a man said that maybe I wouldn't have gotten, maybe he wouldn't have gotten such a negative reaction. And so the kind of thing I'm talking about is um, negative reactions to being assertive, negative reactions to leading negative reactions to uh, being dominant. it, it in a work setting, um, that women wonder, is it true that I will face a penalty if I ask for things that I want, if I make a demand, if I make a request, if I seek power, if I try to be ambitious? And so we hear about this a lot in the political sphere. Uh, In the US, when Hillary Clinton was running for president, people wondered a lot about to what degree is she uh, facing social costs? Do people say, I don't like her? because of the fact that she's seeking power and um, and and has this ambition so it's been around in our culture for a long time and students wanted to know is this real right is it just in my head do i am imagining things and it's so hard to know when you are uh, what we call in science an n of one meaning each of us only has one life to live And it's hard for us to know as individuals, did that happen for the reason that I think it happened or I'm imagining things? Uh, It's hard for us to to know. And so um, what I I wanted to do then um, was was take a more scientific approach. And that's the value of science when it comes to uh, science of human behavior is that we can look at lots of people at one time. So this project that I'm referring to was a collaboration with uh, Laura Tieden. So she, she and I were at Stanford at the same time. And she had encountered, had similar conversations with her women students about how, what's the deal with backlash? Uh, is it real? And if so, what do I do about it? So we collaborated to try to answer this question. And our approach uh, was to turn to the scientific literature, to look at the studies that have been done that have had some kind of situation where a man does something, some kind of behavior, a woman does something, the same behavior, and then the behavior might either be an assertive thing uh, like a a strong ask or a non-assertive thing like a gentle ask or, or not asking at all.
0: So you're talking about identical behaviors. You are able. To I'm see talking identical about identical behaviors. behaviors. Okay, that's yeah. right,
1: and that's what we don't get access to in our real lives. We don't get to rerun the meeting and be a man in that situation and see how it might have gone differently. Uh, but in science, we can do that. We can, you know, ask study participants or volunteers, uh, "What do you think of this person?" and just change the uh, the person's name. So what we find is, uh, on the one hand, we did confirm women's fears. So we did find evidence that there is a penalty that women face to a greater degree than men for exercising assertive or dominant behaviors. Um, And one interesting nuance that we found was that the the penalty when I when I'm talking about penalty, I'm talking about um, some kind of negative evaluation or rating, Uh Uh, not see women as less competent or capable than men when they were being assertive. And so these, these assertive behaviors were things like asking for a raise mm-hmm. or trying to persuade somebody to their point of view uh, in a meeting. So it wasn't about competence. They said, no, these women are competent. I just don't like them, right? And this is uh, consistent with some of our intuitions about how this phenomenon works that uh, that women face a social penalty for um for expressing of behavior. But of course the problem with that is that it's not just about making friends, uh, social and interpersonal characteristics are also part of how we decide to hire somebody. So women were also penalized when it came to, would you wanna work with this person? Would you want to hire them? Would you want to uh, put them up for a leadership role? And so even though they, they saw sort of women as equally competent to men, they saw them as less likable, and therefore didn't want to uh, to put them up for promotion. So there are real instrumental consequences, not just interpersonal consequences.
0: Huge progress. Be- yeah. So you know, if yeah. as you say, we know that everyone's progression depends on being both liked and rated by senior influential people. So you think that women have have to work harder, uh, even if they are competent, on their likability, and that's not a trade-off that men need to make?
1: That's right. That's exactly right. Now, this isn't isn't necessarily to say that women should go around working on their likability. That's not necessarily the answer here, but it is important to confirm that Yes, for the same behaviors, women are going to be uh, seen differently. Uh, but another thing came out of these studies. So uh, Laura and I wanted to figure out, well, you know, let, let's let's work to give women more information than just yes, you're right, things are terrible, uh, because the follow up question that we all always got from students is. Um, Is it always true? Meaning, is it always the case that I'm going to be penalized if I, for example, go to my boss and and ask for a raise? And so we were able to look at uh, a distinction in the types of uh, studies, in the data, and we were able to find situations in which the penalty was present and the penalty was not present. And the biggest difference we were able to pin down uh, was in the nature of the assertive behavior. So what we found is that the penalty was fairly substantial. Um, the difference in how much men were liked versus women were liked for the kinds of assertiveness that were explicit and verbal. And so what I mean by that is, um, any time when you would walk out of a conversation and think. Uh, that person was being really assertive or that person was dominating the conversation or that person uh, was asking for something where you were consciously aware, mm-hmm. that's the place where women were penalized. So the example I gave of asking for a raise would be one, because of course the person who was being asked for the raise would be aware that they were being asked for something. Uh, so that's where we saw the, the biggest effect. Where we did not see an effect though was with the kinds of assertiveness Uh, that are not so easy to detect in human interaction. And those are implicit or nonverbal, also paraverbal, we sometimes talk about uh, forms of dominance and assertiveness. Can you give some examples of paraverbal? Yeah, sure. So dominance behaviors are not a new thing that we've invented as humans. They've been around in our species for a long time. And in fact, some of the same behaviors that dominant humans use. We also see in our our primate relatives, in fact. Uh, So those would include things like uh, expanding the body. So taking up a lot of physical space. uh, So having the arms and legs apart from the body. Uh, Primates do this as well as humans Uh, making eye contact touching other people, using a loud voice. All of these are things that are reliable cues to power. And what I mean by that is that um, these are things that powerful people do. So if we record a meeting and turn off the audio, we can figure out pretty easily who was in charge in that meeting and who was not. We're pretty good at this skill as humans. Uh, And they are also reliable cues to power in that if I were to start doing them, others would infer that i had more influence and they would in fact be more persuaded by what i was saying. So these are these are forms of assertiveness that work in that they do have influence over other people, but they are also things that we are typically not consciously aware of. Oh, can be interesting. Aware so it doesn't
0: so given we're not aware of them, then the the penalty is not the same.
1: That's right. And what we think is going on there is that If you are being persuaded by a case somebody is making and you're not consciously aware that um, they're being particularly assertive or dominance, you don't have time to think about how this might concern you given who is doing the assertive behavior, right? So gender stereotypes are less likely to come into play. Uh, It makes me uncomfortable that she's acting like this, that kind of thing, when you're not aware that you're being influenced in the same way.
0: Interesting. So when you talk about this, this double bind—the likability, competence, and and being penalized for what I guess are perceived as masculine behaviors—that's why, you know, I mean, these are millennia in the making. So these stereotypes of what masculine uh, behaviors are, but that are required of us often to be assertive and confident uh, as as women, um, does the does the penalty penalty come from men
1: and women or? Interestingly, it does. Yeah. So one of the things we looked at in the data is, did it matter who was doing the rating or who was doing the evaluating um, men or women? And there wasn't a difference there. And this is consistent with with other work that I've done. I I almost never see really, interestingly, a difference in the stereotypes held about women and men by women and men. And I think mostly we're just not aware of these things. We are Mm in cultures where men and women occupy different roles and do different things and we soak these things up and uh and we and we express them ourselves so uh women ourselves are not off the hook when it comes to uh, being vulnerable to these kind of phenomena. so we need yeah to so there's biases. there's not
0: a better rap for women if they have a female manager those unconscious biases will continue to prevail They're likely to
1: still persist yeah yeah
0: yeah. And what about unconscious bias training? What have you seen in terms of being able to to get these unconscious reactions to penalizing women for what are perceived as masculine behaviors, but often are just what are required as leadership behaviors? Right. Um, what, what, what do you see? Have you seen interventions where it could make a real difference to people becoming more conscious of what they're doing?
1: I've seen a lot of interventions, and lots of people are trying to address this problem. Uh, unfortunately, the reality is so far the training method does not seem to be all that effective. So, most of the data suggests that uh, the kinds of diversity training or, or um, unconscious bias training that you might encounter in a workplace, and these are very popular and very common nowadays, most of them aren't backed by a whole lot of evidence at this stage. And I think the reason is that um, we may need to tackle unconscious bias in the same way that it arrived. So what I mean by that is um, biases, whether they're conscious or unconscious, arrive in part because we as people are kind of like lay sociologists, meaning that we look out into the world, we observe who's doing what, who takes care of the kids, who's a boss, who's likely to be a president, who's a soldier. And we sort of say, well, that's how it should be. That's what people are good at. We kind of leap to that conclusion. And without being aware that we're doing that necessarily. So it's, it's the roles that people occupy in the world that are the source of the bias. And so just telling people not to be biased in a, in a training or even encouraging them to think about their own biases doesn't seem to be quite enough. Uh, the things that work the best um, to the extent that we have data on that are things that immerse people in a setting where the roles are different. So if you have a female manager, if you work with a lot of women, if you start to see over the course of your life, uh, changes in what men and women are doing, uh, that's gonna be the thing that changes, uh, changes the bias. And in fact, there is some evidence really encouragingly that gender stereotypes are changing so the stereotype that women are less competent than men, which used to be something really robust in the data from, let's say, the 1970s or earlier, uh, people would say women aren't really good at math, women shouldn't run a project, women can't remember details as well as men, those kinds of things. You don't see that anymore. Mm. The reason that you don't see that difference is because women are managers all over the place. Women are you know, leading project teams and women are supervising others. They are not in the C-suite quite so much. As men are, but the woman as a middle manager as a supervisor of an office that kind of a thing um, as a school principal those are quite common roles now for women to occupy and, as a result, our stereotypes have changed. Interesting,
0: yeah. So it's that lived experience, you know, and learning it's, about it right. intellectually doesn't mean anything because we just go back and confirm our biases as we walk out the room. <laughs> that's right,
1: that's right.
0: So it's important then that we do equip women who are navigating this while there are still sort of leadership stereotypes that are primarily masculine. You know how how we t- to navigate that because maybe in a few generations when we've got fifty percent leaders and managers, it it won't be salient. None of these unconscious biases they they will disappear on, off their own bat.
1: I mean, we can be optimistic and hope that that's true. Yes, that would be yeah. that. would be the, the best solution that I would want to see is if we could get women in positions of leadership, I would imagine that the stereotypes would follow. But of course, that's a chicken and egg problem, right? Exactly. So this uh, idea of nonverbal or implicit dominance as being something that sort of uh safe with air quotes around it for women to do without penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I talk about that as a stopgap solution for women, right? It doesn't solve the problem of how do you actually ask for the raise, because you know that's where we do see that differential outcome for men and women. But it does allow you to um, be influential in the roles that you occupy. So if you are a manager, if you are a vice president, and you wanna make sure you are expressing the authority that comes with that position, Uh, these kinds of nonverbal strategies can be ways to do that without fear. Because I think sometimes when I talk to women, they they feel like they need to hold back a little bit to be less assertive than men in their work roles because they are anxious about uh, the social costs they might face. But here's a place where they can do that without that anxiety or uncertainty.
0: Okay, so interesting. So being really uh, deliberate and intentional with your body language could be a really, That's really right. good thing for women to have in their toolkit so they can get heard. What about things like would it work with, we, we know, the data show that women are often interrupted more than men are at meetings. And I certainly know with mm-hmm. my clients, you know, how do how, they don't, you know, as soon as they sort of burst in and then they get, oh, she's got sharp elbows or what's your problem? So is, is this something that they could use body language or nonverbal assertiveness to, to step back in with?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think knowing that these kinds of strategies work and are effective and are sort of penalty free gives people the freedom to use them a little bit more deliberately. Uh, so, with professional students, we'll, we'll even practice kind of walking down the hall and taking up more physical space. Uh, when doing that. And I'm not saying, you know, be a jerk. I'm not saying dominate the whole office, but uh, I'm talking about women who do occupy positions of authority or are entering a conversation or a meeting where they are the ones in charge or who have something to say. And in those situations, you want to make sure that your body matches uh, the authority that you want to have. Um, and so, you know, having an extra chair next to you that you can put your arm on can be a way to do that. Um, we talk about how in air conditioned modern offices you know the temperature is is going to be set for what is traditionally a, a let's say 150 pound man in a suit which is not your typical woman executive so make sure you are not feeling chilly because mm-hmm. when you feel chilly you know you might put your hands between your knees or put your legs together meaning have a smaller constricted posture that's not going to make you look influential, so feel like you're warm enough to be able to spread out in the room, uh, make eye contact when you are the one talking directly to others. Uh, so all these things are things we can sort of prep ourselves for in entering an important meeting and uh, be able to use them as tools to occupy the space. And men might be more comfortable doing these things naturally. They might be already doing them. Women might need a little bit of uh, permission to say, yes, you can do this with your body, with your voice
0: right so we have i guess you know that those those stereotypes and are uh, also a product of our own socialization so what you're saying but right that's back right. to our primates that sometimes women can in fact be taught to exercise sort of submissive body posture which will be sending huge signals out to everyone in the room
1: that's right that's right so one of the things we're socialized uh, as girls and women is that one of our jobs is to make others feel comfortable, right? So that we need to make sure that there's no conflict, there's no unhappiness in the room. You know, we have to have, starting with, we have to be a good hostess and a good, have a good play date when we have friends over. Yeah. Um, so to go back to the example of walking down the hall, most women say that if someone else is coming, you know, they step aside, right? And of course, everybody has to step aside some of the time, but I think women are more likely to do that initially than others even when you know, it's their office, it's their space, um, it's their entitlement to, to continue to walk. So we are, we are accustomed to accommodating, um, and in some ways that might prevent us from seeing, being seen as powerful in ways that we're not consciously aware of.
0: Really interesting. I mean, some would say that we started to talk about that before, Melissa, that these unconscious biases should be challenged. Uh, and obviously there's a lot of work out there around uh, unconscious bias training, etc. and that women shouldn't have to adapt to the prevailing norms of executive life. What would you say to women who say, hey, this isn't fair?
1: It absolutely is not fair. And I would completely agree with that. Um, I think we want to be cautious about the balance between uh, giving women suggestions for how they can navigate their professional lives without communicating that um, this means they are responsible for the problems they face in their professional lives. And there's some evidence that that actually is, that, is, is, um, that can be one consequence that uh, excessive messages that say you know, women should in, in the workplace context, also might lead people to endorse beliefs that when women aren't successful, that it was their own fault, where well, they didn't lean in quite enough, for example. And so we need to give women the tools they need, because of course, they're in jobs now, and they don't want to wait for the world to change. But also simultaneously make sure we are communicating that the responsibility here, the ownership is on leadership, is on organizations, is on industries, to be Monitoring how well they're doing. So, you know, CEOs, um, uh, leadership of organizations needs to be doing things like tracking pay equity, tracking equity in hiring, even counting things like who gets assigned to leadership roles on, uh, at the project level, um, because if they're not paying attention to that, that's where uh, bias will take root. Or take over, uh, so it's it's leadership's job to figure out: Are we doing a good job of this? What can we do to structurally change the way we make decisions? Um, it's not women's job to, you know, push and fight until until they uh, solve all the world's problems.
0: Yeah, so that's sort of a dual track until we get you know, however many generations, let's hope only a few, That's right. more women and leaders, and it becomes just more natural for people. So, you you know, you talked about those stereotypes changing, but at the same time, if we just wait for systems, organizations to change, uh women, you know, we need to equip women with uh tactics and understanding around how to navigate without it being something that is fixing them as opposed to the system. That's right. Um And, and makes them feel that they're also... Uh, operating authentically and with integrity, because often, you know, as soon as we're asking them to do things that all of us, when we step outside our comfort zone, uh, you know, our internal alarm system goes up and sometimes many women I work with sort of think, well, maybe I'm being a fake because it doesn't feel natural And that's That's a real, it's kind of a trap for us, really, because no, this won't feel natural, but it doesn't mean you're a fake. (laughs) How would you address that with some of your students?
1: Yeah, that's right. So the authenticity piece is really important. And I do get questions about that from students because they say, you know, I want to be influential. I want to be successful in my career, but not if it means being a jerk, not if it means dominating others or stepping on others or interrupting others constantly. Um, And so I want to be clear that that's not what I'm intending. So what I mean is that uh, if you are someone who has anxiety about how dominant you can be, how assertive you can be, what's acceptable uh, to get away with, um, I would say interrogate that a little bit because there's likely to be more options, uh, more tools in your toolkit than you might be aware of. And so you can use a few more of those tools, not as much as someone else might want to use uh, in terms of being assertive. And another thing that I talk about with uh, women who are uncertain about how to be assertive is that uh, the data also suggests that we are all, men and women alike, in fact, pretty terrible at knowing how assertive we were in a conversation. So I think that's really interesting that they've asked people, uh, how did it go in that meeting? Or how did that go in that negotiation, or that conversation that you had? And then they'll ask the other people How did it go? How assertive was she? How assertive was he? Was it just the right amount? Was it too much? Was it not enough? And there's often very little overlap between, were you the right amount of assertiveness in your own opinion, and did your conversation partner think you were the right amount of assertiveness? So there's both over-assertive people who who are thinking that they're doing it right and are being too assertive, men and women both, uh, and under-assertive people who think, oh, it was too much, and the conversation partner says, oh, no, that was fine. They could have asked for more. They could have uh, been more How delicate.
0: interesting. So how might a yeah. woman calibrate that? You're thinking that often yeah. women will, will under-egg it, that they have that's, more tools to suspicion. be more assertive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: that I suspect women are leaning on the underestimating side, especially given these anxieties that we have about if I push too hard, people won't like me. And so, what we talk about is how can you how can you get better feedback? Because what we know is that you can't rely on your own sense of how it went to say, "Well, I'm never doing that again," because you know they didn't like it. Um, so we talk about g- getting feedback from a trusted colleague who was in the meeting, and especially for women, getting tr- feedback from a male colleague. How did you think that went? Did I say the right thing? You know, was that too much? Uh, should I have been clearer? That kind of thing. Uh, for at least a few meetings for at least a few conversations as a way of getting better at assessing our own um, assertiveness levels so i think that probably the the folks who are anxious about how assertive they can be may find that they have more room to move and still feel authentic still feel comfortable uh, without feeling like they're tromping all over others or being yeah. not true to their values really
0: interesting because i know um, we know anger, for example, enhances status in men, little, little right. bits of it sprinkled through. It has quite the opposite effect, I gather, In uh, for women leaders. Can you sort of tease out that yeah. for us?
1: Yeah, so there is evidence that... Uh... As you said, that anger is something that powerful people are assumed to do and so that when people express anger, they're assumed to be powerful. But also that women face a greater penalty for sort of, they're seen as losing it, they're seen as out of control uh, in a way that uh, men are not seen. So this is a problem and one that doesn't have um, an easy solution. but I'll say that there's some nuances to that story, just like there are to the question of general assertiveness. So, one is that it's not the case that we want our leaders to be emotionless, right? That we want our leaders to sort of completely shut it down. Uh, we do want our leaders to express passion, even when that passion comes out in the form of being angry. And where you don't see a penalty for women, whether it's in assertive behavior, dominant behavior, or anger is when they are emotional or demanding on behalf of other people, right? So if you come in and say, my team has been mistreated or my assistant needs a raise and you know he's been underpaid since whatever year, uh, the evidence suggests that people don't see that as counter stereotypical or as problematic for women. Now, again, this is part of a gender stereotype. So I'm not saying again, that it's okay, but I think it's kind of this, um, this grizzly mama stereotype, right? That even women can be aggressive, can be tough, can be uh, fighters when it comes to protecting the cubs, right? Um, and so it is a stereotype that that's an acceptable place for women to be, to be assertive is when it's kind of a maternal role, mm-hmm. but it does leave some windows open because lots of the times when we're upset about something at work Or when we need something at work or asking something, it's not just about us, right? It's about the department we're leading or the project we're supervising or the customers we're trying to serve. And so, framed in that way, women have a lot more leeway, as much as men do, in fact, in saying this is not okay and I need to ask for more and I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna insist on uh, something better. Okay, that's um, fascinating. Sort of in the short term.
0: I really loved your work, Melissa, on, on the leaders' self-interested behavior. And I'm interested, why do you think some leaders use their position to amass prestige and resources and others to benefit the team, the organization, or society? Because I often find with the women I work with, um, they're often a bit ambivalent about being powerful because they see powerful leaders as potentially, they see it all a bit dark, really. And power yeah, is yeah. about prestige and and resources and riches. And often their motivations are quite different.
1: That's right. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, I think that the, the, the people that we speak to who are uncertain whether they want the job are exactly the ones that we want to have in power. Yeah. Because power is a mixed bag, in fact, at least when it's done right. Leadership is a mixed bag because Yes, it probably brings a raise and maybe some more autonomy and a nicer car and those kinds of things, the perks of of status and role. But it's also a burden. It's a responsibility. Uh, You are the public face, you might be, for for a lot of people. Others' jobs and livelihoods might depend on you. You might be held responsible for things that are outside of your control. And so I think it's the people who see the responsibility and the burden of power and take that seriously um, that are the ones we want to have in charge. That doesn't mean it's always going to be a positive experience to be in charge, but the ones for whom it's all about sort of personal glory. um, You know, those uh, the data suggest are the ones who are more likely to prioritize them, themselves, their own interests, personal goals over the interests of the uh, of the team or organization.
0: So advice for women in terms of uh, their own powerful selves will be just to tap into what their leadership purpose is. Why are they doing it and for whom? And yeah, that should be OK.
1: That's right. And so we have to think of leadership as having those multiple motives that just because the person who preceded you uh was in it for some kinds of reasons uh and you don't see yourself as sharing those values doesn't mean that the role has to always be that way Um, another thing that we see in women's compared to men's ambivalence about having power is the interpersonal or social aspect so women talk about you know if i take the job or if i pursue the opportunity um, my subordinates won't support me or you know, the people who are now my peers and would become my subordinates won't support me or I'll lose that those social connections of having all those uh, folks that who are currently at my level uh, as peers. But the, the data suggests that um, we have fears that it will be lonely at the top that actually exceed our reality of how lonely it is at the top. Um, and part of that is because when you go up a level, what you forget is that you gain peers at that level. We're kind of uh, uh, naive about that part. We forget that if we become a vice president, there'll be a network of vice presidents that are, that are supporters um, and that we may well have the support of our subordinates. So women fear kind of the social costs or the, or the lack of social network uh, when they seek power in a way that men are, seem to be less... Uh, concerned about. And that means that women might say, well, let me just stay here one more year. right? I'll just stay at this level one more year. Um, and they're maybe less likely to go after the the promotion.
0: Interesting. So again, a good message to self is that uh, we're probably over-egging the loneliness and how it will be in terms of a negative experience when we look at positions of power. Melissa, it's been such a privilege. I'm wondering if you can, um, if there's any advice you might have for my women listeners, most of whom are aspiring or women leaders, uh, adeptly and well managing and nav- to navigate this um, Yeah. Uh, This world of being and needing to be an assertive, confident, uh, ambitious leader, but also needing to be often nice and caring and not ask. And so it can be very noisy out there for people to step into their leadership identity with with clarity and confidence. Any in closing, any final advice you might have for them?
1: So I would say that uh, you're not imagining things. You're not crazy. Backlash is a real thing. It does happen and it does affect women's careers differently than men, but not all the time, not in every single situation, not in every meeting, not in every conversation. And so my advice in general would be that uh, the fear may be more we may be more fearful than we need to be about backlash. That there are many situations in which it's okay to be assertive, many ways to be assertive that are not penalized and contexts that are not penalized. And frankly, that even if we are penalized in some cases, it may ultimately be worth it for the change it brings to our own lives and to those of others. So I would say try to keep the fear, prevent the fear from of backlash from holding you back from pursuing these opportunities.
0: What a wonderful, uh, wonderful piece of advice and a great way to end. Melissa, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to dial in from Atlanta. I wish you all the very best, uh, your advice and the insights you've given us about the nuance between managing the double bind and again, not second guessing ourselves about the backlash, but stepping into uh been courageous and confronting the fears, and acknowledging that uh, that navigation is is challenging. But there's a toolkit out there, and it's been really helpful. Uh, so, Melissa, thank you very much, Professor Melissa Williams.
1: Thanks so much. It was great to talk to you.
0: Thanks for listening to Grit in the Oyster. If you're enjoying our conversations, do subscribe, rate and review us on your podcast platform and join me again soon. You can also find more information and resources on building your best leadership self on pennydevolk.com, including my blog that covers topics from how to negotiate powerfully as a woman and building your authority, through to having your voice heard and boosting confidence, all in support of building your leadership career.